0: This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? waiting for the real thing to start. Hello and welcome to The Real Thing. I'm your host Joel Lawrence and here we are on the fourth episode of The Real Thing. How exciting it is to be now five weeks deep into this podcast. It's the deepest foray that I've had before into podcasting on my own, and I'm pretty happy with how it's going. This podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club, which is an independent cinema in the heart of Bergen, Norway. The film club's main goal is giving a voice to those who deserve it, revealing insights into unknown cultures, and showing awesome movies. In this podcast, I talk about the films included in the film club's extensive programme of films, past, present, and future, And, you know, I hate to say it, we have another great episode uh, ready for you today. Although, there is a little bit of a change. Not every week will I have a guest. Maybe I should have said that at the top of the podcast in episode one. But that's just the way it is. Sometimes it's just going to be me talking about a film that I have really enjoyed, that Bergen Film has shown. And sometimes it will be with an expert, a friend, any... One from the film club, but this week it's just me. So I hope that's okay with you guys. We're going to get comfortable. We're going to set and settle into a mood of of relaxing to talk about this exciting film that we're talking about this episode, which is The Craft. It has been a delightful week in Bergen this week. This is uh, going to be a new a new section of the podcast where I report the weekly weather in Bergen. This week it's been lovely. <laughs> It's been a lot of sun, it's been a lot of shirking responsibilities to be outside and take in the the brief moment of sunshine. On this podcast Will Kill You, which is a podcast that I recommended a couple of weeks ago. They just released an episode talking about the importance of vitamin D and how dangerous vitamin D deficiencies can be. And I don't think that it could have come at a better time. I'm, I'm very conscious of it now. I'm a little bit afraid. But I um, yeah, I'm, I'm soaking in all the rays that I can. I'm drinking more milk, just, which is uh, going to be gross to a lot of people. But I, I have to get vitamin D. Um, uh, that podcast episode really uh, instilled a desire to be healthier. So this isn't the recommendation corner yet. But I'm, again, recommending this podcast will kill you. Because it's just a great way to learn about the human body. And it made me appreciate the sun so much more. But also being a Bergen makes you appreciate the sun a lot more because it's so infrequent these lovely sunny days. Um, yeah, but I'm going to stop now because uh, talking about the weather is is truly bottom of the barrel topic uh, conversation topic. So, how about we begin in the classic way with some recommendations? So, starting off as always with a podcast recommendation. I have been thinking about recommending this podcast since the very first episode, and every week I've said to myself that I can't recommend it, because I am obsessed with this podcast, I listen to this podcast, I listen to the episodes, like, more than once, probably upwards of five times I've listened to the whole catalogue of this podcast. It is the podcast, My Favourite Murder, on Exactly Right Media. This is the first podcast that I ever listened to and I just think it is the most incredible podcast an incredible piece of media that I have consumed and continue to consume in my life. It is hosted by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstock who just talk about different true crime stories and different murder stories and survival stories and I just think it's so brilliant. They tell the stories very much from the perspective of the victims, which I think is incredible. But one of the best things about this podcast is how open Georgia and Karen are about their own mental health struggles, how open they are about attending therapy. It's had such a huge impact on my own, my personal life. It has drove me to seek therapy multiple times when I Felt like I didn't need it and hearing them talk about it really pushed me to get involved. And I just love the cozy vibe of this podcast. I understand that the subject matter is a little horrible and other people can be a little bit turned off by true crime. But you just feel it's a like it's said that listening to a podcast is very much like sitting in with a conversation of two friends. But this just feels like you're sitting down with your two best girlfriends And just, they have such a good rapport, and I don't know, like, what more can I say about this podcast Just that I love it so much, and I continue to love it. They have just gone into their seventh year of podcasting, and they were the founders of the Exactly Right Media podcast network, which I think all of the podcasts, apart from last week's episode, all of the podcasts that I've recommended have been from that podcast network. So, yeah. My favourite murder on Exactly Right Media, I can guarantee that you will not be disappointed by this podcast. This week I have no TV recommendations, so I haven't been watching anything since I uh, finished Red Rose and the series U on Netflix, but I do have two quote-unquote okay movies to recommend for this week if you just want some enjoyment. I'm recommending just released on Netflix, Jackass 4.5. Discovering that I think Jackass is funny was probably as much a surprise as it was to me than to anyone else. I don't know why I think those movies are hilarious, because I don't like watching people get hurt and I don't like poop, etc. But when it comes to that, I don't care for some reason i think that is the it's the funniest shit that i've ever seen for some reason so Junkers 4.5 is uh, what i'm recommending i think that it's uh, it can speak for itself in terms of what you might expect from it uh but it was a pretty fun time uh just uh a little pick me up a little laugh it it was pretty well made as well and sort of centering around covid as well which was an interesting addition into the into the movie but yeah it was okay and the second film that I'm suggesting is the 2008, I believe, movie Shutter, which is also on Netflix. It follows the story of a photographer and his wife who moved to Tokyo. Uh, so the husband can pursue a career, uh, his career as a photographer in Tokyo. And it's a little unclear what the wife's job is. So that's interesting. And basically, they are haunted by this Japanese woman. And it was pretty, the acting was pretty bad, I would say, but it was enjoyable and it was uh, shot really cool. There was a lot of cool shots and I loved the way that they incorporated the camera into the movie. I thought that was uh, really well done. Uh, Roy from The Office was in it, Uh, so that was nice. And the plot line was not too dissimilar to that of What Lies Beneath, which is a Harrison Ford, Michelle Pfeiffer movie, I believe, which is also very good. So I'm also suggesting that, why not? But that's been Recommendation Corner, I suppose. Not so much to recommend this week. Um, I hate to say it, but I do unfortunately have a life outside of this podcast, so I don't have a lot of time to watch TV. As much time as I would like, very disappointing. But nonetheless, let's jump in to the episode. Today, we are talking about... Andrew Fleming's 1996 teen supernatural horror film, The Craft. So, like I said, we are talking about the 1996 Andrew Fleming directed movie, The Craft. Upon its release, this movie got mixed reviews, uh, but since then, it has gained a huge cult following due to its progressive themes, which tackle bullying, racism, peer pressure, self-esteem and self-acceptance. There was a sequel in 2022, which uh, was not very well received, so we won't talk about that. Another interesting fact is that it inspired Kate D. Perry's 2013 hit single, Dark Horse, which is uh, great. To think that there is a timeline that doesn't have that great Juicy J rap verse, all thanks to the craft, so that's pretty cool. So this movie was mainly a collaboration between the producer Douglas Wick, who is most famous for his work on Gladiator, The Great Gatsby, and Memoirs of a Geisha, and Peter Falardi, who, uh, who began writing the script for this movie. So then they brought in Andrew Fleming to direct and produce the final version of the screenplay and he became the director of the film. They enlisted a real life Wiccan, Pat Devon, as an on-set advisor for the film. And she made all of the incantations to make sure that the treatment of Wiccan's subject was uh, the most accurate and the most believable that it could be, whilst also, I suppose, being the most respectful to try and make it as real as possible. So they have a Wiccan, so this film is all about teenage witchcraft. So the general outline of the plot is that it follows four high school girls. Nancy, who's played by Feruza Balk, Sarah, who's played by Robin Tunney, Rochelle, who's played by Rachel True, and Bonnie, who's played by none other than Neve Campbell. They are all outsiders in a way. Robin Tunney's character Sarah is a young girl with unusual abilities who moves from a new town with her father and her stepmother, At a new school, she forms a friendship with these three outsider girls, Nancy, Rochelle and Bonnie, who are all outcasts and rumoured to be witches. Bonnie has burns from a car accident. Nancy lives in a trailer with her mother and abusive stepfather. And Rochelle is a woman of colour and is the target of racist bullying by a group of popular white girls. The girls do witchcraft and worship a powerful Earth deity pagan god that they call Manon. They then observe sarah levitating a pencil in class and then she becomes the fourth in their group filling out the air water earth fire circle northeast southwest so that they can all become powerful and cast spells and do whatever they want sarah develops a crush on the popular chris hooker who's played by skeet ulrich and is furious when he spreads a false rumor that they slept together Sarah confronts him and then she casts a love spell on him and he becomes infatuated with her. Rochelle casts a revenge spell on her bully Laura to make her hair fall out. Bonnie casts a spell for beauty to make her scars disappear. And Nancy casts a spell that makes her abusive stepfather suffer a heart attack and then that they receive loads of money from his death. And then the whole kind of plot of the film is centered around this invocation of the spirit where Nancy wants to have the power and embodiment of Manon fill her up so that she can be all-powerful and it sort of corrupts her and that's sort of where the film goes from there. So this Manon character who is the god that they worship ties in very well with the themes of this movie which is wicca, paganism, magic and like I said self-esteem, coming into your own as a woman, bullying, racism etc. This Manon character is the god they worship, like I said, the creator of all things. He's not good or evil. He represents the more primal aspects of human instinct and therefore is more interested in bolstering facets of a devotee who invokes for more self-serving reasons, like this corrupting nature that comes to Nancy. When the witches start abusing their powers, they lose their connection with Manon and their magic suffers. Manon is not a real pagan god, but more an amalgamation of other pagan deities. This idea of paganism, I thought was pretty interesting, is a term that was used by 4th century Christians for people in the Roman Empire who practiced polytheism or basically anything that wasn't Christianity. So during the Middle Ages, the term paganism was then applied to non-Christian religions and the term presumed a belief in a false god. Nowadays, modern paganism, contemporary paganism or neo-paganism is a term for a religion or a family of religions influenced by various historical pre-Christian beliefs of the pre-modern people in Europe and adjacent areas of North Africa and the Far East. Although they share similarities, contemporary pagan movements are diverse and do not share a single set of belief practices or texts. So it's just like good vibes, nature, believing in one another and not the sort of like... Strict doctrine that Christianity has, so that sounds pretty nice. I personally really, really enjoyed this film. It was part of the part of the film club's folk horror festival. It was our uh, closing film, and I just thought it was so good. It was just so I felt like it was so perfectly what it should have been. It was really '90s, and it was as much teen drama as it was a horror film. Although there were some points where I felt like it could have gone a little bit further with the horror, I still feel like it. Which is such a great thing about horror, to me, is that it's a way to frame these sort of like abstract concepts or concepts that are kind of maybe not difficult to tackle, like bullying, but can be sort of elevated through through the use of some sort of supernatural sci-fi or magical element. And I think that's what The Craft does so well. It's about these girls who are isolated, but then also introducing a conflict within their own group. I really like the way that it portrayed women's power i thought it was a really it's sort of it's using a metaphor uh for sort of the way that a woman can come into her own during her teenage years and what that might mean the producer douglas wick said that he'd always been very interested in the idea of female empowerment and that the first movie that he did was working girl that it was thinking about these teenage girls and how suddenly they become they receive this enormous amount of power which is coming into their own bodies and he was wondering how he was going to make a movie about that. He was aware that witchcraft is an age-old metaphor for talking about female empowerment and the sort of mysteries of women and their connection in terms of reproductivity which uh, I guess is it's interesting for a man to want to tell that story but I mean From the perspective of Working Girl and also Andrew Fleming, who is a gay man who's worked on a lot of films, which is showing the world from a real woman's perspective, which I think, in a way, can still be very powerful and very good. Douglas Wick also went on to say that when he was starting to try to figure out how to do a story that would be about a very real teenage emotion-feeling story, that the best way to do this was expressing it through witchcraft, which is what I was saying about having horror contextualize things in a kind of a weird, creepy way, but in this heightened way, there is an ability to explore the longing and the fear and the wants of these characters, just as they come into their power, the power of their sexuality and the power of the world. He said that he started talking to a lot of different writers about how to approach this and talked to several people who were way to genre and didn't really understand. But then this is how he came to decide on Peter Follardi. Um, because he instantly had some great ideas. Filotti said that he and Doug spoke for hours about magic, magic mushrooms and ecstasy, and he remembers telling him that magic is historically a weapon of the underclass, which is super interesting, that it was originally practiced by people of the heath, or heathens, and that poor people without the power of a king, army, or a church behind them can use this to get their own back. The characters in this film are not popular, they're not particularly beautiful compared to the overlords of their school for real magic to work they had to be outsiders with more than desires real magic requires needs he said that Doug agreed he had young daughters at the time and that essentially they just sort of hit it off and you can really tell that this film that everyone was working quite cohesively because it for me feels like quite a cohesive film it tells the story of these girls very well even if some of them might meet slightly unfortunate ends It's essentially really a story about just believing in yourself. And I think that we could all stand to believe in ourselves a little bit more. So I mentioned that this film was part of Bergen Film Club's Folk Horror Festival. And just to finish up, I just wanted to talk about folk horror and what exactly is it. So it is said that the British films Blood on Satan's Claw, The Wicker Man and Witchfinder General are regarded as the pioneers of this genre. Blood and Satan's Claw was our opening film for for our Folk Horror Festival. And I think I said a couple episodes ago that I found it really scary, even though a lot of people didn't. Because of the definitions of folk horror have emerged almost exclusively in the context of British folk horror, it is said that other nation traditions almost by necessity will not quite fit into this uh, this definition. But I think that, which I'll come to talk to, it is more of a vibe than a strict set of rules. Folk horror is a subgenre of horror, film and fiction that uses elements of folklore to invoke fear and foreboding feelings. Typical elements include a rural setting, isolation, themes of superstition, folk religion, paganism, sacrifice and the dark aspects of nature. Although it's related to supernatural horror films, folk horror usually focuses on the belief and actions of people rather than some supernatural element, and often deals with the naive outsider coming up against these, these ideas and these sort of more localised I- feelings. The term folk horror was used in 1970 in the film magazine *Kind Weekly by a reviewer called Rod Cooper, describing the film The Devil's Touch, which was then renamed Blood and Saints Claw*. Folk horror differentiates itself from the larger horror genre in several ways. While the ultimate goal is to leave you feeling unsettled and anxious, folk horror doesn't lean in traditional jump scare tactics or gory imagery in the way that standard horror films do. Folk horror dives into myths, legends specifically tied to history and culture to bring out these ideas and these more unsettling and maybe more personable fears. Fans and critics alike have expended considerable energy trying to define this folk horror, genre, film, scene. And by and large, it derives its chills and audiences by tapping into our most basic instincts about fear. Those childhood fears born of fables used to teach and protect, which eventually morphed into stories intrinsic to specific cultures. Folk horror takes elements of these stories and presents them in a fresh way that touches in our innate fears. Like I said about Blood and Satan's Claw, I don't know what it is that I find so upsetting about that, but I think this isolation of the characters in that movie in particular, the way that no one is really believing each other and the idea that it's actually the children who are behind this, I think that's maybe what I found so unsettling. In terms of the classic tropes in these films, isolation is a crucial factor in most of these movies. It can have a number of meanings depending on the context of the story. And typically, isolation of folk horror is more about people finding themselves as outsiders coming into an established community. So think, bury the Wicker Man, *Midsummer*, etc. Some consider that the setting should be rural for it to be considered folk. But it can be broader than that, definitely. There's definitely a lot of films which uh, could be considered folk horror. I would think... uh, The movie Censor is a good example of that. It definitely has this sort of scary British vibe, but I believe that that is set in a city. Whilst the general structure of these films can be very different, there is often a happening or a summoning, which is this sort of ritual or sacrifice moment, an invocation of a demon, earthly or otherwise, that is usually the thing that is closing the movie. These conclude these folk horror narratives not only to serve to bond the communities that are their central antagonists, but also usher in the pagan or occult beliefs that have become identified with the subgenre. It's very, again, the Wicker Mind is just such a great example of this. It's a mind coming into a situation that just feels weird just to, at the end, see that it is... Uh, it's very weird. It's very ritual. It's very sacrificial. And I think that that's a really not fun thing, but cool thing about these films is that it it I think that they all can often have these very satisfying endings, and that there's these sort of very small parts and clues of unease that sort of drive together what is ultimately quite a big ending. At the most basic level, then, folk horror is rooted in the dark folk tale, in the communal stories of monsters, ghosts, violence, and sacrifice that occupy the threshold between history and fiction. However, one must not take the traditions of folk horror at base value. They are typically not authentic traditions, although they may be well represented as such within text. Instead, they are highly mediated and often expressly fabricated. So I think that is uh, a pretty good point, especially in defense of Sweden. I feel like Sweden gets a lot of flack in terms of its uh, ritualistic, um, how apparently ritualistic and... Uh, sacrificial the people who live there are, I'm pretty sure that Mitzumach has not happened in real life. The author Adam Scovell puts it that folk horror often creates its own folklore. The folk horror plot is driven by a much more permeable boundary between normality and the monster. It's driven in fact by a kind of doubled othering and thus a doubled normality. The seeming protagonists, avatars of normality, are never completely normal, and the apparent monstrous antagonists that threaten them are never completely monstrous. In other words, both the protagonists and the antagonists, typically the outsiders in the community they stumble into, are each simultaneously normal and other. The extent of the ambiguity pervading this central divide of horror, the extent of the ambiguity surrounding normality and the monster is one of the most distinctive traits in folk horror. And this is, I think, this is seen really well in in Midsummer by Ariasta. Is that this character Danny, as she is continuously let down by her boyfriend, you could say that this otherness and this normality between her and the cult that they've come into sort of begins to blend, and that the sort of realistic ideas between the two of them are eventually kind of on the same level in the end. Even though her boyfriend meets a very unfortunate end. There is a, a lot of people who would agree that he deserved what he got, in a way. And I guess that's where this fear comes from. And that that is it. That is all that I have to say about The Craft and all that I have to say about folk horror. If you haven't seen The Craft, I really highly recommend it. It is like Mean Girls on Acid doing spells and witchcraft which I think is the best sell that I could give it because it is a really enjoyable film it's so 90s it's so cool and yeah definitely check it out if you haven't seen it it was very fun and definitely give folk horror a go I like it because it's sort of I think it's a bit more accessible to non-horror fans because it's not so like in your face bleeding stabbing scary Giant monster woman coming from the basement. It's more of like looking into you. What fears do you have and how can that be manipulated? Which maybe is scarier, but ultimately is a lot cooler. Now, to end the episode, we have some five star letterboxed reviews of the craft. From Piss Girl, I love hot girls who do magic and have anger issues. From Violet Dream 33. This movie is my whole personality, great portrayal of female rage, I'm insane. And lastly from Baby Fairy, I think I'm in love with Nancy, which is kind of fucked to say seeing she's a psychotic greedy bitch that can't think outside herself, but I love that about her because it's always a good time to watch a woman reach peak mania in a film, and I can't agree more, i love to see that. So that's that, end of another episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you've enjoyed just me. There will be a couple more episodes like this every now and then. Uh, But I had a lot of fun just talking to myself. I hope that you learned a lot because I thought it was really interesting learning about the origins of the word pagan. But that's just me. Like I said, watch the craft. It's great. But this has been The Real Thing. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Bündersen. This episode was produced, mixed and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Shilfgai and Mamina Nazmijit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at the Real Thing Pod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.